So I don't know about you, but have you ever been, I know this happened to me several times, but absolutely thrilled and absolutely terrified at the exact same time? Absolutely thrilled and absolutely terrified at the exact same time. We're talking about being happy beyond measure and at the same time being scared to death. We're talking about being delighted and petrified at the exact moment. Maybe you're at the amusement park. You're thrilled to be on that ride, and all of a sudden it starts that climb. It is like from a horror movie, right? That click, 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 click. You know, as you get to the top, you're thrilled. You've waited five hours to get on this ride, right? And now you're there, and now you're laughing, and maybe a little tear comes down your eyes too. Why? Because you're scared to death of what's coming over that hill. Happy and terrified at the same time. Maybe that feeling of of parachuting or or bungee jumping. Maybe that feeling of standing on the precipice of the Grand Canyon or uh, Royal Gorge. We used to live not too far from the Royal Gorge in Colorado. That feeling of almost to the top of the Tower of Doom in an amusement park. You know that feeling. You're almost to the top. You're strapped in, and it's just slowly taking you up there. It's a nightmare because you know you keep looking up because as soon as you hit the top, it's going to drop you 30 feet in three seconds. As best I could, we we went on a ride with my kids. We had some fun with that. Kara absolutely loves this ride. I'm kind of lying, but we get to the top and I really wanted to just take my camera. If I would have done it without dropping it, I didn't take pictures. But I wanted to video because the, the gamut of emotions going up there is like, yeah, this is so cool. Look around you. And I kept saying, hey, look at all the skylight at the night. Look at everything around you. And they knew that smile was quickly fading because you just get higher and higher. And before you know it, in a split second, you're dropping 30 feet down. Your stomach is in your brain. <laughs> Maybe that feeling the first time you get on that, on the back of that green horse that you spent three months trying to get to like you. Maybe that feeling stepping onto the field or the court as a starter with a new team. You're thrilled and you're terrified at the exact same time. Maybe that feeling, there's some teenagers here this morning. That you're driving, you got this cool thing in your wallet now called a license, your parents have been with you, and now you're on your own, and now you know you're getting on the turn to get onto the on-ramp, to get onto that highway, and you know you're going to have to step on it to 65. There's that split second where you're like, yeah, I got the power! And that other split second where you're like, oh, no! Everybody's flying past me. Those moments of being delighted and terrified at the same time. So I have this emotional side. (laughs) And I did some reminiscing this week, which is not always healthy. And I remembered back to holding my children the first time. As a dad. Tears taking over my eyes. My heart melting, holding these little children, these blessings from God, thinking, God, these are amazing gifts from you. I am so thrilled. But that in that exact same moment of holding this child, p- crying with tears of gratitude to God, I'm crying with tears because I'm like, what am I ever going to do? <laughs> these children have to be raised by this dude? 
these children have to be raised, and here's the reality of it, they have to be raised in this world? This broken, messed up world that this child has to be raised in? And here's the resolve of fear in my life, that, that kind of negotiating going on in my emotional brain is, you know what? This child is never going to leave my sight, ever. Maybe when they're 45, I'll let them go to the grocery store. But they're never going to my, leave my sight. And the other thought is, I need to go buy five more guns. <laughs> this fear, this crippling fear of being thrilled and at the same time being terrified. Thinking through it this week. This is my daughter, Kara. Our world was rocked on March 22nd, 2005, when she entered into our world, holding her, thinking, God, thank you so much, but then crying. I didn't include the picture of me crying. (laughs) Because thinking, what am I going to do now? Two years later, January 10th, 2007, Selah Grace Scott, her her name means pause and meditate on God's grace. And I'm going to say every day of our lives, she has allowed us to pause and meditate on God's grace. A couple years later, this little dude came into our life, David Monroe Scott, April 28, 2010. Holding this son, thinking, okay, I've got two girls now, which by the way, having girls, both Hannah and I looked at each other and said, what are we going to do with girls? (laughs) Four girls later, we're still trying to figure it out. (laughs) But David, holding David, thinking, God... What am I going to do with this guy? I want him to be a godly man. I'm thrilled that you've given us a dude. But what am I going to do now? A couple years later, at the top of the mountains, God blessed us with little Evangeline Hope Scott, born February 18, 2018. She cried and has talked every day since she was born. (laughs) Just this last year, we were blessed with a child we didn't, necessarily plan in any way we call her our blessing from God but we also call her our bonus from God because we did not expect this little one and God said yep you're having another girl our little Emma Joy Scott her name comes from the Psalms where it says let the nations be glad our prayer was that this little Emma would let the nations be glad born December 6 2017 and honestly as I held each one of these child children, tears in my eyes, I'm thinking, thank you, God, for this miracle. But God, what do I do now? Thrilled and terrified at the same time. I'm going to tell you, not a single day goes on in my life. Actually, I should say, not a single week do I not interact with that question. How do I do this? How do I parent how can I be a father that, get, by your grace, God, helps these children to navigate through this broken world? Dads, if these emotions have been yours in any way, then Psalm 127 is for us. Psalm 127 that you're holding on your laps right now, this is for us. Because we see this question, this this theme come alive in Psalm 127. This psalm highlighting something from the onset. Highlighting you're completely incapable. You can't do it. The terrified aspect of it of dads, you're right. 
You can't do it. But then transitions into this hope that you can't do it, but there's someone by his grace that can help you do it. So that's what we're talking about today. With this in mind, let's, let's do this this morning. Let's read Psalm 127. Um, I don't know if you can see that super well from where you're sitting, but as best as you can, I want to do something this morning. This is kind of a, a group project this morning. I want, to, I want us to read this together. Um, Psalm 127, I'm going to start with actually verse 1. I'll read the part in the blue. It might look purple to you, but it's blue. And then if you would read the part in the red as sort of a responsive reading, there's a reason behind this that we'll get to in a minute. But we'll do our best. Let's practice with verse 1. So I will start with saying, unless the Lord builds the house. That was phenomenal. Good job. Let's try it again. Let's start at verse 1, and we'll go all the way through the whole chapter. When we get to the end of our day, we can say we read a whole chapter in the Bible together. Verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Behold, Children are a heritage from the Lord. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Great reading. So why do we do this? Why did we read that way? Because I honestly think, here's the reason, because I honestly think this is the way that a good Hebrew family would recognize this psalm. What are we talking about? And I want us to put ourselves in their sandals. This psalm, and you can probably see at the top of your Bibles there, at the top of the psalm, it says, a psalm of what? Ascent. What in the world is that? Well, let's put ourselves in the shoes, the sandals of any good Hebrew family. This morning, let's put ourselves in their sandals, thinking we live in the Jordan River Valley, about 50 miles from Jerusalem, and we want to travel to one of three feasts. This is what a lot of good Hebrew families would do. They would travel either to the Feast of the Tabernacles, which is what we're doing today. We're going to go to the Feast of the Tabernacles. Or you would go to the Passover 50 days after Passover, you would go to what's known as Pentecost. You'd pack up your belongings and you would travel. As you travel, you left home, you're on this hike, and pretty much anywhere around Jerusalem, you would be lower elevation. You would have to come up. If you're in the Jordan River Valley, we're talking about 2,000 feet of elevation gain. Not too intense, but pretty steady as you go up. So the first day we travel, this is 50 miles, we're going on a family travel, right? Let's just say it's five of us. Your wife, you, three children, and a donkey. Okay, we'll just say you have a donkey. Maybe a a father-in-law or mother-in-law along. (laughs) All right, so six of us, seven of us. We're traveling up. Every step of the way, we're getting a little bit closer to the place where we worship together. This is Yahweh's place, this is Jerusalem, and in Yahweh's place, Jerusalem, you have Yahweh's place of worship, it's the Temple Mount. This is where Yahweh's people, God's people, worship Him and obey Him in traveling there three times a year to worship. 
So as we're stepping closer, we're, we're coming closer, all of a sudden another family, our neighbors from two miles away, we notice them. Hey, they jump in. A, year, a, a day goes on, and towards the end of that day, we start reciting something. We start thinking on something. All of a sudden, in the group, you'll hear someone respond with something like this. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. And then the rest of the group would respond, which cannot be moved but abides forever. And then another dad would yell out, as the mountains surround Jerusalem. Then the whole group would respond, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. You rest that night, you get up in the morning. When you get up in the morning, you start traveling a little farther. All of a sudden, you got another family and another family and another family. This caravan is turning pretty significant. And as you're traveling towards Jerusalem, maybe you're getting about 10 miles away. Now you have a group of maybe 50, 100 people traveling together. And someone, some, maybe some dad in the group will yell out this. Maybe he's making a point to his family, but he says this, Behold how good and how pleasant it is. And he looks at his kids because they all say, For brethren to dwell together in unity. (laughs) Because you know what happens on family vacations, right? A while later, another dad yells out, Unless the Lord builds the house. And the caravan responds this way, They labor in vain who build it. Another dad, in carrying on the baton of the passage, will yell out, unless the Lord guards the city, the whole group will resound, the watchman stays awake in vain. What is this? As we approach Jerusalem, and we're taking steps towards Jerusalem, another one of these psalms will come up. And another one, to the point where you, maybe you're traveling through the Jericho Pass, the Jericho Road, some tough walks through there as you're walking through there and all of a sudden you crest and you see the city this is Yahweh's place and you're looking at Yahweh's place you're ready to enter into Jerusalem and as soon as you enter into Jerusalem you split and you go to your different place of dwelling these families that you've spent days with traveling now you're located in different places staying but what has happened the whole trip God has prepared your heart to worship Psalm 127 is one of those preparation psalms. If you go to your scriptures, you'll find this, these psalms of ascent, which are from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, are actually found in the bigger group, the great Hallel songs. And, and the scriptures, well, we know it now, Hallelujah. If we say Hallelujah, what do we mean? Praise to Jehovah. These are the magnificent praise hymns. But for chapter 120 to 134 are specifically meant, and we don't know exactly when they were all compiled, but they were compiled to assist people in worship as they got closer to the feast. So when they entered into the feast, they were ready to worship God. Now I want to say specifically in this passage is a reminder in these Psalms of Ascent that every step you take as a dad closer to worship with your family, it is all about God. In these Psalms of Ascent, there's a constant reminder that God is the capable one. Well, if you'll notice at the top of your page also, I'm just kind of setting a background to this psalm. Right under that says Psalm 127, a psalm of ascent written by who? 
Solomon. Go figure. <laughs> All right, Solomon. Okay, as I look in the Bible and I look at a lot of, of, of guys that kind of missed the mark when it came to being a dad. I mean, when it came to being faithful in the home. Uh, who would I think of probably in my top five? Solomon. But I'm going to tell you, this is a testament of God's grace. That even a messed up dude who's messed up royally in his home, God is still faithful to guide and to guard. We don't know when exactly in his life Solomon wrote this. It could have been prior to all this mess that happened in his life as you read through the story of his life, all of these wives and, and mistresses. It could have been prior to that. I think potentially it was later on in his life, as he looks back into his life, because it's very reflective in nature, this psalm. He's looking back into his life, and he's saying, oh, that was vain. Oh, that was vain. Oh, that was vain, which, by the way, reminds us of another writing from Solomon. What is that? Ecclesiastes in the Scriptures. Solomon writing this, preparing people for worship. So then, anytime we come to a psalm, Psalms are beautiful Hebrew poetry. We want to acknowledge that there is Hebrew poetry in it, and the best way they can do that a lot of times with letters or even words, but also structure. When you look at this psalm, we just kind of breeze through all five words, all five of these verses. However, when you go to this psalm, it's very clear that it's written in what's called strophe, stanzas. All right, we just sang stanzas in the songs we just sang as a worship team. There were movements in songs. All of these movements in the given songs had a theme that, that, that combined, that synchronized. This is written in two stanzas, verses one and two and verses three to five. All of these leading to a primary thing. They're organized truths with parallel thoughts. So what I want us to do today is just simply look at as you look at that psalm, you find two primary themes. Here's the first theme in verses 1 and 2. The Lord is the only sure support for daily life. Here's the other theme, the other movement in the psalm. The Lord is the one who has blessed parents with children. It's amazing because the application could go anywhere. The first two sentences, this first two phrases in this is very broad. And then all of a sudden, the application goes specifically to children. Here's the thought. The Lord is the only sure support of daily life. And this Lord, who is your only sure support, he has blessed parents with children. So that's where we're headed today. Let's just go through this morning and, and see how this passage yells out, we are not capable, but praise God, he is, so let's trust him. Starting with the first point. The Lord is the only sure support for daily life. It is simply laid out in this passage with this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake. Uh, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and, and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Okay, what phrase is repeated? Obviously, it's on the, on the screen there. In vain. I mean, obviously a theme, as we just mentioned, of Sol Solomon's writing through the Holy Spirit. In vain. What does in vain mean? It means empty. It's worthless. In other words, all of these ventures in our lives, 
if they are not attached to the sovereign king, the creator and sustainer of all life, they can come down to worthlessness. They don't hold weight. Let's further explain this. What are the examples he gives? Well, first of all, the Lord is the only sure support for building a durable house. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Okay, so right away, in our thinking, we want to go to a spiritualized application. So we look at that and say, yep, see? It's a spiritual thing. Unless God does a spiritual work in your house, you labor in vain. I'm going to say from the onset that probably this is not written with the spiritual aspect in mind. It's written with a very practical way of looking at it, of putting one brick on top of another, putting one rock on top of another. This is a normal day's work. Someone who builds something. This is something you do. And what does the, what does the psalmist say here? Solomon, he says, unless... The Lord builds the house. Those who build it are doing it worthlessly. The point is this. The Lord is the only sure support for building things. Okay, what's another aspect of life? Not only building things, but protecting things we build. Next verse. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain or worthlessly. Very practically, uh, as, percept- as perceptive as we are to protect ourselves, our families, and our communities, it is all worthless without the sure support of the creator and sustainer of all life. The point, the Lord is the only sure support for building things and protecting things that we have built. Okay, let's advance this a step further. So if you've built something and you're protecting it, you're going to work to sustain it. This is right here in the text. It is vain, it is worthless that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for, for he gives to his beloved sleep. What is this anxious toil? Probably a lot of what we endured this week. All right, working hard. All right. Before the sun comes up and after the sun goes down for some. Putting in those hours this week in Reading, trying to do as much of it as you possibly can in air conditioning. I'm learning very quickly. I think I lost seven pounds of water weight yesterday working in my garage. All right, that anxious toil, and what's the point? Building something, if it's not done with the, with, with, with the Lord, it's, it's vain. Protecting what you've built, if it's not done with the Lord, is in vain. And resting through your anxious toil, if it's not done with the Lord, it's done in vain. In other words, all of life, if it is not attached to the great sustainer and creator of all life, it is worthless in meaning. There's no meaning if it's not done for the purpose and glory, as we talked about last week, of God Almighty. Okay, let's go from the first stanza into the second stanza now. There's a lot more we can say about the first stanza, but let's just quickly go from first stanza into second stanza. How's the second stanza read? Application. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb are a, uh, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. 
Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. They shall not be put to shame when they speak with their enemies in the gate. What's the clear focus here? Well, I've highlighted it twice, right? The clear application of what he just said. The clear application that we can't do anything worthwhile without connecting it to the great sustainer and creator of all life. The pure application is let's travel into talking about our families, our children. Fathers, this is to us. Mothers, this is to you. Fathers and mothers, parents, there is a pure application to what's happening in our homes. The clear focus is on children, specifically the beautiful relationship of parents with children. The God who makes daily life happen, who sustains daily life, who is capable to sustain daily life. He is the one who has blessed you with children. That's the reminder of this passage. The God who holds it all together. He is the one who has blessed you with arrows. The Lord has blessed parents with his children. And let's see, let's develop this a little bit. The Lord is the one who has blessed parents with children. And let's look here at some of the ways that Solomon, by, through the Spirit, develops this. First of all, the Lord has blessed parents with children as a valued heritage. That's what he says. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. What is that? What is this heritage? We think of it as passing something on. Well, that's exactly right. It's like passing on a very valuable inheritance. It's a prized possession. It is like, I mean, and we don't want to think of our kids simply as things. (laughs) They're people. But really, it is like passing on a very, very valuable property. When you think of this context where people in in God's land, the, the holy land, would hold on to their property, it was passing on your heritage, passing on your property. And what does Solomon say? Hey, listen, I'm speaking to you as one that has everything. What did Solomon lack? Pretty much when it came to financials and land, we're talking about nothing. He had everything. And what does he recognize? Children are a blessing from God. They are a heritage from God. The simple point is this. Children are not to be seen as tiresome burdens. (laughs) What's honestly, they can be seen that way often. They are not to be seen as tiresome burdens. They are to be seen as valuable assets for parents from God Almighty. They are blessings from God. Let's see how he develops this a little bit further. Not only as a valuable heritage, let's go further. He says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, and he further explains it by saying, The fruit of the womb, a reward. Wow! Children are a reward to dads and moms. Uh, what is, let's let's kind of zero in on this concept of reward. What is this reward? It is a wage for a job well done. A job that has been faithfully accomplished. The point again is this. Children are not to be seen as tiresome burdens, but as a treasured asset for parents from God Almighty. When you get your paycheck at the end of the way, uh, at the end of the week, you're not going to just take that and stuff it with all the papers underneath your seat in your car. 
This is something you hold on to. It's a reward. You take that right to the bank. I'm going to tell you, parents, according to what Solomon says, and I think in his mind, probably as he's writing this, very possibly tears are coming to his eyes, thinking of the many ways he misused his opportunity of being a dad. These weren't a reward to him. And he's saying children are a reward. By the way, let's just talk openly on this. Is this contrary to the way our culture looks at children? (laughs) I would say by and large in a massive way. I mean, if, if children are valued enough to let them live, I mean, we're talking about not taking their lives in the womb. I think we all know what we're talking about with that one. If children are valued enough to let them live, then we're going to part them out all over the place to different places and let the the culture raise our children, let everything else happen. And if there's someone to blame, we're going to blame the church because they didn't raise my children right, right? We like to think of everyone else. And I know they have influence in the lives of our children, absolutely, absolutely the church has influence in the life of our children but the way by and large culture looks at our children is we just got to get through this stage and then we can have our lives back (laughs) do you understand what i'm saying i mean in a personal example i felt this in a huge way back where we lived in in colorado we lived it was crazy we lived at the top of the mountains in leadville it was just a crazy eclectic place all kinds of people lived there it was kind of a a neat place because you had both conservative you had the other side of the equation all living in one really kind of messed up town (laughs) if you headed down 30 miles you came to a place called Buena Vista it was a highly conservative town churches on every corner if you headed 30 miles further down the Arkansas River Valley from that you came to one of the most progressive towns in all of the mountain region so you have a mix, then you have conservative, you have a really highly progressive town and political, liberal type of mentality. And I found myself tempted in so many ways to carry the opinion of the place I was at into my family. Honestly, within a given day. I'm up in Leadville, and it depends on who I talk to, whether I really highly value having five children or not. We have five children, okay? That's uh, not 25 children, but it's five. It's a lot of work. It's a bit of a circus at times. And, and normally in Leadville, it was, we had, it was looked at as a positive thing. You travel down into Buena Vista where we would go, very highly conservative area, and it was like we would no problem pretty much say, yeah, we have five children. We love these children. They're great. I'm going to tell you, though, as you travel further south, and we spent quite a bit of time in this other town, once in a while I'd talk to people, and it would be like, hey, how many children do you have? Oh, we have five. I got five in our car, yeah. Why? Here's why. It's because people around you thought two and no more. Get him in, get him out, have my life back. And I had to constantly negotiate with this in my life, realizing every single one of these children, Kara, Sela, David, Eva, Emma, are absolute blessings from Almighty God. They're to be treasured. They're to be grown. And as we see now, they are to be sent out as defenders. Let's see that in the text. Here's what Solomon says. In his moments of reflection, he says, these children are a reward. These children are treasures. They're heritages. These children are to be as lifelong defenders. You're like, I didn't read that in the text. Well, 
That's what he's talking about in verses 4 and 5. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who has, who fills his quiver with them. What's the clear metaphor here? Arrows. Your children are arrows. Precision arrows that are used to defend a warrior. Well, if we could just take a minute, I'm not going to dwell on this very often because I, I know there are some archery, some archers here. How many of you in here like to hunt or just shoot with a bow? All right, there's several in here. All right. I, I love that. I really enjoy getting out there with my bow and shooting. Well, think about what happens with arrows. Arrows are skillfully pre- prepared for precision, with precision care. You take time to prepare your arrow. I mean, if you have one that has not been prepared, with something on your arrow that's not quite right, it's not going to shoot straight. Arrows are precisely prepared. Then here's another point. Arrows are confidently launched toward the enemy in a battle or towards the animal that you want to kill or whatever the case may be, your target. You're sending that precisely cared for arrow directly out. You're sending them out. Can you tell that's the theme? You're sending them out with precision care. What's the simple point? Children are not meant to be bashfully sheltered their entire life, but faithfully trained to trust God so that they can be confidently sent out to do God's work. They are meant to make a dynamic difference in the home, but away from the home. Children's Children are God's built-in defenders for their parents and community. And I love this. The whole community would benefit by an archer who had a precision-cared-for arrow knocked ready to go. They were defenders. This concept continues on into the last verse. And by the well, before we even get to the last verse, it says, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And I'm going to say, praise God that he didn't give us a number. <laughs> All right? Some people's quivers are full with one. <laughs> I was talking to my dad about that yesterday, right? It's about all you can handle, handle with that one, but it was a, it's a precisely cared for arrow. Whether you have one in your quiver and your quiver is full or you have 21 in your quiver and your quiver is full is not designated in the text and we praise God for that. (laughs) If he were to give us a specific number, there would be issues. So here we are. Sent out as arrows for your warrior, defending, and then also as supportive speakers at the gates. I want us to think about this. Let's put ourselves in their culture, right? Well, we can keep ourselves in our culture if we want to for just a minute. If you want to go do business, like formal business, we would travel over to the Shasta County Courthouse. The courthouse, things happen, all right? If there are accusations, they are brought there. Any, if there's major business that happens that needs to be mitigated, you go there. That's what happened at the gates. When we think about what's happened at the gates, we read here verse Five, blesses the man who fills his quiver with them. But then here we go, the second part. They shall not be put to shame when they speak with their enemies in the gates. What's this talking about? If you had a community point to be made, 
It would happen at the gates. If you had a criminal accusation, it would be heard at the gates. Here, in this passage, what's it saying? Children are basically seen as either the key witnesses, it doesn't designate it, but children are the key witnesses or the defense lawyers for their parents. They're defending their parents. Children are seen as a defense for their parents. What's the point? Children. Children are not meant to be trained and trust God in order that they can be held on to. They're meant to be trained so that they they can be sent out. And if they do come back, guess what? They are your defenders. When accusers stand up, they're trained to trust God. Your children are trained to trust God that they know how to give an answer. When you're old and gray and can't defend yourself, guess who will be the ones to defend you? Those blessings from God. What's the key idea? I'm kind of wrap this up. Here it is. Since God is the only sure support for daily life, and the one who has blessed us with children, that's clear in this text, what's the takeaway? We must confidently trust our capable God in everything we do, first of all. Everything we do, we trust in God. Whether it's building, or protecting, or toiling. Everything we do, we're trusting Almighty God. But then, the takeaway, we must confidently trust our capable God in everything we do and trust our capable God with our families. Dads, I'm here today, we're here together realizing we can't do it on our own. We're incapable. But that's why we trust our capable God. We bring them on our journey of trust. We're saying, hey, I'm trusting God, and guess what, children? You're coming with me. We're trusting God together sending them out on their own journeys of trust. Okay, we've been on this journey of trust. You've seen your dad struggle. You've seen your dad cry. You've seen your dad reading the scriptures and soaking it out. And guess what? Now you're being prepared on your own journey. Hey, get out there and trust God. So what? So what? How is this going to make any difference on this Father's Day? I think here's a couple questions that we can analyze. First of all, fathers, are we confidently trusting God in everything we do? Everything. The reassurance of this passage is this. Hey, don't be afraid. God is capable. Holding that child, being thrilled and terrified at the same time, realizing, hey, you can't do it. It is God that is capable. Trust him with your child. I'll never forget sharing this with a godly man in the church I was ministering at. And I'm like, man, I'm scared to death. What do I do with these children? He says, what are you talking about? It's not you. It's God. He is the capable one. The reassurance of this passage, don't be afraid. God is capable. Dads, we're not perfect. I'm not standing up here saying, hey, be perfect. I'm standing up here saying we're not perfect. We're sinners saved by God's grace. Brothers, we are sinners saved by God's grace, but we are trusting God every day for our lives. How do we trust God? How do you trust God? How do you prove to your family, whether they're still in your home or out of your home, that you trust God? I'd say here's a couple suggestions. Regularly spending time 
in God's word and prayer? What's that gonna tell your kid when you get up, when they get up in the morning and they look over there and they see dad soaking in God's word, praying, tears coming down face of the dad realizing I can't do this on my own but I'm studying God's word. What's that tell your children? There's a dad that trusts God's word. There's a dad that loves God. How else? By dependently turning to God for daily strength. Brothers, you know what it's like in toil where you're exhausted. Where do you turn for strength? When you, when you can't get up in the morning, you're like, I, I can't do it. Where do you turn for strength? Let your children see you turn directly to your God. How else do we do this, fathers? By faithfully serving God's people, even when we've toiled, re- we've toiled tirelessly. We're exhausted, actually. You can't go any further. But then to see dads trust God by serving the body of Christ, what an example of priorities. What about discerningly living the gospel of Jesus Christ and making that central in your life? Teaching your children to trust God by making the gospel of Jesus Christ central to everything you do. So fathers, the question is this, are you confidently trusting God in everything you do? And I would add to this, humbly repenting when we make mistakes. Our kids aren't stupid. My kids are over there saying, amen, thanks dad. They know when we mess up. But what happens when we mess up? Do we humbly repent? Do we walk through this with our kids? Here's another question. Fathers, are you training your children to also confidently trust God, bringing them with you, trusting God in everything, and bringing your children on the journey with you? By the way, in the big picture, what does this mean? We heard a little bit of this the other night, Friday night, for those who watched that documentary. What does this mean for us? It means for us in this stage of the redemptive story that we encourage and compel our children to trust Jesus. He is the one. Solomon at this time in redemptive story, they knew things were happening and worship was happening. But guess what, brothers and sisters in Christ? We have a Savior who has already died and raised from the dead. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, we're constantly pointing our children to Jesus. God is faithful. As new covenant believers transformed by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are teaching our children to daily trust Jesus and walk in the Spirit. We are teaching our children to completely trust that the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient. It's enough for every day of their lives. So much that they can now be launched out as an arrow. But pastor, I messed up. (laughs) Pastor, I failed. I missed my opportunity. I have regrets. My kids are a mess. Maybe one of those thoughts is coming your way right now. Maybe maybe feel like that, that boat's launched and you're stuck on the harbor thinking, what do I do now? I've made mistakes. Maybe this week you look back to your week and you're like, oh man, massive loser, (laughs) failure. If I can just pose two reassurances is this. 
even though you're not completely faithful and you will make mistakes, there is a God who is faithful. He is trustworthy. He will accomplish his plan. You've made mistakes in your past. Hey, God's still working his plan. And that's the second thing I would bring up is this. God is not done yet. Maybe you have mistakes from your past. And maybe you failed in certain areas. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God's not done yet. God is still working his beautiful plan. The story isn't finished. What stimulates trust Honestly, what stimulates and progresses trust is what? Struggle. One day at a time, speaking truth. One word at a time. One text at a time. One phone call at a time. Like the father of the prodigal son. Keep watching. Keep praying. Keep loving. God's not finished yet. By the way, arrows that miss the target can oftentimes be collected, mended, and sent out again by God's grace. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Cross Point Community Church, let us fully trust our capable God, realizing that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain.